Welcome to Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. On today's episode, STO Mission Critical Project Executive Jim DeNoya discusses the mission critical construction landscape in the years following the pandemic with SVP of STO Mission Critical, Martin O'Neill, and Vice President of Data Center Engineering at Sentinel Data Centers, Nick Marzarati. Hi, everyone. My name is Jim Denoya. Welcome to Building Conversations. I am a project executive with STO Mission Critical. STO Mission Critical is a brand of the STO Building Group that specializes in data center construction. I am here with my colleague, Martin O'Neill, SVP of STO Mission Critical, and our distinguished guest, Nick Maserati, VP of Engineering with Sentinel Data Centers. Today, we're going to just talk about a subject that we are calling the slingshot reaction of the COVID era, let's put it that way, for the last few years, where it's gone, where we are now, and where we may think it's going. Today, we'll bring up some things that we hope that will inspire or be intriguing to the audience and from an engineering, construction, and owner's perspective. So let's start with that, and we'll have Nick and Martin introduce themselves. Nick Marzarati, uh, VP Data Center Engineering at Sentinel. I come from a consulting MEP background. Um, I graduated Stevens Tech in 2011. I took a job working consulting engineering for the last 10 or so years and um, moved over to the Sentinel role a little over a year ago. And so my focus at the consulting firm was predominantly data center mission critical work. So that's kind of how I landed at the role at Sentinel Data Centers. Martin O'Neill, Senior Vice President of STO Mission Critical. Been working in the industry, building data centers for the last 25 years now. I've had the pleasure of uh, working with Sentinel for, geez, I think it's almost 20 years now, building data centers all over the US. Thanks, guys. I think what we'll do is hit our first question. I think, Martin, you're going to start with this one, and then Nick, you can chime in. The first thing is, I think it's been talked about the effects of COVID, but since it arrived three years ago, we felt the changes and the impacts to the landscape and the mission critical industry. There's been a consistent rise to the effect of projects, conception, and execution. So where would you take that, Martin, and uh, just talk us through the the different things that have happened and what we've experienced? Yeah, sure. I think you said it too already, Jim. COVID affected all verticals in the construction industry, not just mission critical, right? We became a very social industry to a very virtual industry, both on active projects and prospective projects. What we saw specifically from a mission critical standpoint was just the volume and the size of the projects that were being put out on the street. Historically, data centers, you know, they are large scale, but there was a lot of smaller, medium-sized data centers from a 8 megawatt IT, critical IT load to the point where now most of the RFPs that we're answering are for 400,000 square feet day one, multiple story, and probably 36 to 40 megawatts day one of critical IT. And that hasn't stopped. It hasn't slowed down. In fact, it's accelerated. We're seeing that from more hyperscalers, but we're also seeing it now in a vast amount from the developer-led model. That was a big change for us. And, and I'll say kudos to all of our teams on all of our platforms for being able to deal with that, responding to RFPs and executing work virtually during COVID, but then post-COVID transitioning back to it. 
I think one other thing that we saw as a big change during COVID and post-COVID was the size and the scale of the data centers drove the energy providers, the utilities, to max out in certain areas. So for us, from a geographical standpoint, we were looking at new regions that we had never worked in before because you know everyone's seen what happened down in North Virginia, right? with the utility and the transmission and the stress on the transmission lines and the fact that we can't get that power to the sites anymore in, in a quick fashion. So people have been looking at different locations. And then also, I think, Nick, you'll, you'll agree, the cost of land. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone through the roof. So geographical reach for us has changed um, dramatically. But uh, again, you know, it's, it's, it's part of what we're doing, part of the industry. Yeah, I mean, just kind of piggybacking off of the, the slingshot when yeah. COVID started, right? It was really scary for everybody. You know, there was the kind of everybody worked from home. You know, you almost thought there was going to be kind of a lull, a slowdown. And, you know, I think we're calling it the slingshot because we weren't really, we weren't really expecting there to be an influx of all these data center requests, RFPs that are coming through. And so my hunch is that really it was kind of data center developers and customers and you know, some of the larger guys, they really wanted to hedge their bets and, and and push each other to kind of get into that next tier. So you kind of, you almost saw this exponential growth through the data center, through the COVID era. But part of the issue was that it was, it was creating a lot of labor shortages because the factories were kind of pulling people out of them. And so, you know, as a result, you kind of have these two compounding things. You've got an intense amount of RFP requests coming in, but then the factories and fabricators, everybody kind of slowing down a bit to kind of gear up for preparing for the, the pandemic. And so you kind of you kind of ended up in a very interesting time. And then post COVID, it, it almost feels a bit like we haven't caught up. You know, production hasn't caught up with the requests. There was almost this one or two year backlog, and now you kind of see that with with equipment lead times, right? And you yeah. kind of see that with almost everything all the way up, you know, from, from, you know, the supply chain all the way up and to kind of push stress and not even just the, the build side of the, the kind of put stress on the design side as well, because, right. you know, at the time I was at an MEP consulting firm during COVID and I can, I can, I can say we were, it was really, really tough to keep our head above water. The requests were just coming in. And so <laughs> I think that that's still happening now. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to kind of see how, how this, current state of everybody being overloaded factories being overloaded lead times being two years out how everybody starts to adapt to that and then the kind of traditional project approaches they all start to change and form around that but really interesting and exciting to be a part of it and see the growth just you know exponentially just expand yeah i'm starting to wonder if the slingshot has actually released yet or if it's still (laughs) ramping up over for the next five years yeah but all of us in the data center business have seen exponential growth in the industry. I think we all agree that the scale uh, has a macro impact to the supply chains. As we were talking about with your fabricators and stuff, how has it changed the facilities, how they're designed, and what are the major challenges, risks, and strategies from the construction standpoint? Well, I think Nick touched on a few of those, Jim. Historically, data centers have always had long lead times when it comes to like all big iron, right? The generators, the UPS, the switchgears, the chillers, all the big kit. And when I say long lead times, I mean like 50 weeks, not 92 weeks, which or a year plus right now um, Mm -hmm. is normal or, or approaching two years. But one thing that we did notice, and again, it's not just unique to the data center industry, it's unique to the whole construction industry, but it affects us too. The cost increase in the lead time challenges 
now started to affect structural studs, structural steel, precast, roofing, stuff that we never had a problem getting became a problem for us. So that was something that we had to start building into our schedules way in advance. Logistically, how do we build the building with limited materials on hand, right? We've had some clients that, you know, have done a really good job of pre-purchasing a lot of the, whether it's the exterior skin of the building, right? The precast, the steel, Mm -hmm. all that good stuff. They've been able to get that ahead of the RFP, ahead of the CM, and then assign it to the CM. So we have it there. I think another big challenge is it has been cost. We've got a major issue with schedule, but we've also got a major issue with cost. So when we budget out a project day one, and then six months later, when the design's finalized, that day one may pencil out for a deal. And then six months later, that may not pencil out. So, you know, the costs have gone, you know, gone, gone crazy. I mean, structural steel, I think structural steel went up 45%, right? Mm-hmm. Not quite 50%, but it, it almost doubled. Roofing doubled. We're seeing some stabilization in some of those materials, but still on the mechanical side, the electrical side, it's pretty scary being able to obtain those parts and things that we need to to execute the work. Yeah, on the developer side, from a schedule perspective, it's just getting really challenging to plan. So now lead times for Quincy, you know, back in the day, you'd always pre-purchase, like you said, all the, you know, the gens and transformers mm-hmm. and stuff. And so it almost seems now that the pre-purchase schedule, things have gotten such long lead that we're we're way off from the traditional project schedule, meaning from customer engagement through landing the deal and in parallel lining up, you know, the equipment showing up. So what we're seeing it kind of doing is putting a pinch on the design side because you want to remove risk on the build sides, but you, you kind of have to take the risk and procure some of this equipment before the deals come to fruition. And so the way that you manage that, at least from my perspective on the design side is you kind of start to adapt a a more of a prototypical approach where you kind of have equipment that could be potentially teed up for the new project that's coming, but maybe it's kind of going to work for the project that you've kind of already got yep. in, in the rear view mirror, if, if you will. So that kind of prototypical approach, it's weird. It's like all these big supply and demand kind of tug of war situation that's happening. And then I, you know, I, th- I think that that, that changes how the buildings are designed, right? So they're no longer, you know, super niched, to a specific client, you kind of start to see a more wide scale standardization such that your equipment procurement process can kind of line up with the actual project schedule that has to come about. And then the cost volatility, that's another scary one. I mean, it makes planning and budgeting and all the conversations that you have with your customer much more challenging because educating your customers on the costs, we're talking two, three X the cost of what it used to do some sure. of the things. And so your customers are basically, they're a lot of them balk at it, right? They, they can't believe it and contractor bids coming in on just the mechanical and electrical and right. stuff like that. And it's, you know, we're still kind of in this rapid growth period where we haven't really got those supply chains worked out. So, you know, a lot of the balls are in the vendor's court, right? They, they kind of mm-hmm. hold all the keys for the lead times and the schedule. And so we're left trying to cater to that via yeah modifying the designs a bit. And I think something that you touched on too, Nick, which is really important for us, is that it's the interest in bidding work right now, because with the strain on on the trades, on the vendors, not only mission critical healthcare booming as well, what we found is, you know, we'll, we'll go out to certain regions and really get, you know, we'll get interest, but not as much interest as we would get in the past, right? Um, and so I think the best success we've had is where we've been able to partner up with a client 
and they've been fully transparent with us on the pipeline. So they'll give us plenty of advance notice on work in different regions, size, scale, all that good stuff. And we're able to forecast that and be transparent with them and say, hey, you know, this is something that we can we can go do for you, right? But then also socialize that with the right subcontractors and vendors so that they get advance notice mm-hmm. to, to say this job is coming yeah. versus just getting an RFP that hits the street and you've got four weeks to respond. Yeah, for sure. It kind of feels like everything is moving towards a design build. And I know on the opportunities we work on with Structure Tell Me Sure, we we're engaging you guys almost the minute that we get the RFP, right? We're we're engaging in constructability discussions and lead time discussions and right. what's the latest on equipment and you know pricing and manufacturing. So you almost have to, yeah, you, you almost have to in this climate. Yeah, sure. we found that all across the board is that the the developers want to get the contractors on board as soon as possible, or at least get their feedback as soon as possible to keep going to get things ahead of schedule. Nick, let's keep you on a roll here to talk about trends, technologies, and where you see things stand out more than others for changes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really expansive question. So I can kind of go, you know, so just, you know, starting from when I kind of got into the mission critical industry, you know, call it a decade, a little bit more than a decade ago, we were building one to two to three megawatt halls, probably at the largest. And so that would be probably for buildings that were more or less going to end up being 10 to 20, I'd say at the tops, megawatts total. So now, you know, it seems like gone are the days of those smaller calls. It's like if you're go through, going through the process of standing up a shell, standing up and, you know, coordinating with all the utilities, it seems it seems like everybody's pushing into this five to seven to nine or even 10 megawatt haul sizes. And, you know, I think a lot of customers are kind of sometimes even going above that. And so mm-hmm. that kind of changes the way that the buildings are looking over, you know, the last five to seven years. And so it's almost a result, like I said, we, this is why it's called the COVID slingshot, if you will. Mm-hmm. But in the fall and the wake of the, the pandemic, the massive expansive, expansive, everybody wants to build, you know, the biggest and the, the most scalable, the largest, and they want to really get the most out of the lemon, if you will. Yeah. So, so you see a lot of larger halls, but you know, with that comes people wanting to optimize the building shell themselves, right? And so you're really going towards kind of increasing the density as well. So not only are their halls getting larger, meaning they can support more IT capacity, but they're also getting, they're increasing in density. And so, you know, density is 10 years ago, probably in the 100 to 200 watts a square foot. And now, you know, now you've got a lot of customers that have requirements that are pushing you into the 350 to 400. And, you yeah. know, some other customers are in some other some other projects are you know really trying to squeeze it down. We can kind of get up to five hundred watts square foot, which is you know I think doable. But I you know I think it starts to get, you know push the envelope on some of the some of the technologies. And I think another trend you'll probably start to see. And so you know the advent of getting those data halls and so dense and so large really is it was kind of a perimeter cooling problem to solve mm-hmm. for for a lot. And I think perimeter cooling is a strategy that you know, we've seen for forever, right? So down typical downflow crawl units to a raised floor, but it almost seems now there's no more race floors, right? So I don't know about you guys, but not a lot of race floors are being built. So it's hard to achieve the higher densities and the higher capacities with traditional race floors. So you're starting to see a lot of fan wall utilization. So I think that the introduction of the fan wall style cooling really helped get data center halls to the capacities that you're starting to see today. So I could keep going if you like, um, (laughs) to kind of depend. Why don't we have Martin chime in and then I'll come back and have another question on that for you. Yeah, I think I think one of the big trends we certainly are seeing, in addition to design, but it's it's all about logistics, right? So we're seeing a lot of developers asking CFs to come on board early to get pad ready, right? So instead of putting the shell up right away, it's get it pad ready, 
so that, you know, we rub the side out, we get it level, we get it ready. And then th- that way the developer is able to go and respond to the RFP very quickly versus, I mean, on that front end, you probably have four to six months of work, right? Depending on the size and scale of the site. So that's definitely a trend that we're seeing in the industry that we didn't see before. And prefab, right? I mean, that's not new. That's been around for a long time. People have been pushing it, but we're doing a lot more. With the limitations on labor, we always used to look at it and say, if you can reduce the labor in the field, you increase the safety as well, right? Because you're putting it into a, into a more controlled environment. But now we have to, yeah. because there are, there are limitations on, on labor and getting that labor to the available site. So we are seeing a lot more prefab going out there. So skid mounts, whether it's an electrical room, mechanical skid, that's just becoming the norm now for us so yeah yeah speed to market or speed to build or speed to deployment is almost it feels like it's the only way to meet the demand it can only really happen through technological advances and so i think another big one that we're starting to see a lot of um in water constrained environments you're starting to see um i think you're seeing a lot more air cooled chillers that are that are primarily cooling the data centers and so i think a few years ago, the technology was still pretty inefficient and people were struggling to get an air-cooled chiller to work with the latest energy codes and, and those kind of compliance paths. But now the introduction of the, the Dan Foss turbo core compressor within air-cooled chillers is kind of changing a little bit of the landscape of how data centers are coming about. And you know, I think it used to be how some people used to do it in the past. You know, traditionally, Sentinel, we, we've we've always loved to build water-cooled plants. And, you know, if we have an abundance of water, we'll, we'll always build water-cooled plants. You know, we find them to be the most effective, best CapEx and OpEx game for your buck. So, but the advent of those new chiller technologies really is really helping speed-to-market developers. So, you can bring in extra power as much as you want. The complication now going forward is the heat rejection, right? That's really your main problem going forward. Yeah, so I guess if you're asking if we have unlimited power and no water, now the problem to solve is, yeah, so I think then you kind of get into some nice relationships between like a multi-story, and that's another thing we didn't really talk about a lot, but a lot of these data centers that are going now are multi-story, right? It didn't used to be like that, right? So, well, there would be those that were popping up back in the day, but now it almost seems like the standard and and we'll get back to that point in a sec. But the reason why they're going multi-story is because they're trying to get the best bang for the land bug, sure, right? And so, sure. but what ends up happening is you've got to kind of find a spot for the heat rejection. And so as you go vertical, you're losing area to reject that heat. So yeah, every project's a little bit unique still, but mm-hmm. um, you have to find that balance between how tall can your building go, how dense can you get versus what you can fit on the roof practically, right? So that it's not super niche solution into something that pushes you away from the speed to market deployment. So a lot of variables at play to try to solve <laughs> that that problem, which is all part of the exciting delivery. So that process. might need its own podcast. Who knows? Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. True. Next week. Yep. There you go. <laughs> so let's go on to our fourth question here. Have you or have you seen others apply or working towards more sustainable solutions? I'll do a little bit at the front and then I'll hand it over to the technician over here who can go into real detail. But certainly from a sustainability standpoint, one of the the big things we've seen certainly as a challenge, right, is power generation on site, is having having diesel generator, backup generators on site in the quantity that they are now. Again, back not even five, six, seven years ago, right, it was unheard of to have 60, 70 generators supporting one, one facility. 
not only the impact to the environment or the local neighborhoods as well, right? Mm-hmm. From a noise and, and a visual standpoint. So what we've seen is a lot, a lot of people now looking at eliminating um, diesel generators and, you know, UPS in totality, right? And going to a fuel cell type of approach, whether it's a Bloom Energy um, or someone similar, similar to that. So so to me, that's a big sustainability thing. I mean, what's what's the Achilles heel of a data center, right? It's it's lack lack of power and water. Yeah, on the sustainability, I mean, it's definitely a consideration for every new build that goes in. I guess it just feels like with the size and the densities of the halls being, you know, the, the buildings kind of going up, there's not yet a a renewable energy source that can practically meet the demand of a of a data center, and so. Rather than considering, you know, potentially offloading some of the utility power to some sort of a renewable source, which is really tough to do with the 40 to 60 to 80 megawatt, you know, campus. From Sentinel's end, we look to achieve the lowest possible PUE. So that for us comes from a couple different couple different ways. And so it's the advent of evaporative cooling. You know, we use a lot of evaporative cooling, mm-hmm. but we typically couple that with, and much of the industry is getting there as well, with much warmer temperatures in the halls. So the warmer that you can deliver air to the racks, obviously the less mechanical cooling that you have to be. And so depending on certain geographies, you could potentially deliver almost the outside air entirely for the entire year. And so, you know, obviously there's limitations to some of that and there's issues that have to get worked out. But from the overall sustainability play, um, we've considered, you know, the blue energy. And I think it's a great technology if the gas is kind of available. And I think that for us, the sustainability play is reducing our annualized PUE to an absolute bare minimum, as close to one as possible. And so, you know, we've got an active, we've got a couple active facilities that, you know, have our water-cooled buildings Mm -hmm. that are boasting annualized PUEs less than 1.1 um, on an annual basis, wow. which is, good. in my mind, this is sustainable as it gets, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, outside of generating your own utility power, yeah. right? And I mean, there's, there's been a lot of discussion over the last 12, 24 months about our nuclear power, right? So how does that play into this industry, if it ever will, yeah. um, but standalone, you know, um, plants that would support those campus builds? Because again, campus builds weren't the norm back in the day. Now, everyone that's building or developing is putting up more than one shell. Mm-hmm. It's normally three shells, four shells at a minimum, and it could be as much as nine or, or, or more total, right? There was, there was probably a handful or less of, of folks in the industry that were doing those campus builds. Yeah. Now, it's a norm. Yeah, I mean, the nuclear power, you're getting into, this is kind of the, just the macro planning for the expansion of data centers, you know, starting from the early 2000s to now. And so how are local utility companies scaling up to meet that? And, you know, we see certain areas are highly constrained, right? Your Northern Virginia utilities are extremely constrained. Um, you know, you start to see a lot of those pockets of constrained areas. And so it's definitely a challenge. I do, you know, nuclear, I'm, you know, we might be a ways away depending on how, yeah. how, how, uh, how certain developers get there. I'm sure utility companies are starting to plan for that, this massive expansion and, and considering building that into their overall pipeline, new, new plants, you know, new generation plants yep. as their grids start to tap out. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. The last topic for this podcast, I think, would be the future. How do we predict the future? Can you give me some lottery numbers, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of advancements do you see happening because of the new chip design and you know you see the nvidia stuff that's come out every seems like every week now there's something a new or an advancement or 
their stock is just exploding. But what effect does that have on Sentinel and yeah, I mean, the, the future planning is like, we get to, it's, a, it's a good nerd out topic, right? The yeah. AI, you know, the AI certainly seems to be the hottest, the hottest thing right now. And so, you know, at least from my perspective, we're, we're trying to understand what that means for a lot of our customers. And so we have some theories about this basically bolstering their current global production capacity increases. But this AI bug might be basically the new parallel path that a lot of these customers take. And so... We're kind of at an inflection point where you you might just start to see all, all the you know all the big players start to double everywhere, right? Just doubling and doubling yeah. and continue to exponentially double. How do you plan for that, right? While also trying to meet the speed to market and the supply and demands, you know, those big swaths of supply and demand, you know, issues. So I think uh, that's 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 the hardest question to ask is you know and and answer is really how do how do you plan for that? And so for us, it's all about just acquiring land in in, in relatively economic areas where we can that aren't as constrained from a utility power perspective, but also, you know, we're, we're working on kind of prototyping and, and understanding, you know, pushing the limits on densification and things, and, you know, things like, things like that. But, you know, it seems right now the most practical method for heat rejection is still water. There are certainly some customers that are pushing the bounds, but for us, it seems like water as the main medium for heat rejection is, is the move. So, you know, I think it's cool, you know, the closer you can get that water directly to the racks, the best we will be in a future for, for planning. And so, you know, we'll still be likely employing a water-based cooling rejection method for a while as a response to meeting the unknown, but probably known exponential growth of the, (laughs) of the industry. So, yeah. Have you seen much Nick in in terms of, um, to to go into a little bit more on your question, Jim, like emerging cooling, right? I mean, we've heard everything we've, you know, we've seen responses that we had to put together and build out now up to 600 Watts a square foot. But then we've heard what could be coming in the future, one megawatt racks. And so do you see that near term on a grander scale? I know it's happening on a micro scale at this point, I would say, but do you see that happening across the industry as land becomes more expensive, water becomes less available? Yeah, submersive cooling. So I think directed shipping, you know, things that I think it's a, it's definitely coming very expansive topic as well. You know, I think that's the cop out answer I'll give right now is the, you know, the best way that we're planning for that is is bringing water as close to the as close to the halls as possible as a philosophical way of the heat rejection, right? So we feel that if we do that, then we're prepared for much. And if we kind of reserve some portion of our land to expansions and cooling plants, then I think that we can kind of get there. Yeah. Definitely agree. It's a very uh, it's a loaded question, right? Yeah. Because I mean everyone's everyone's touching that that topic in the industry. You start to toe the line with what's practical again. And now you're at the speed to, you know, everything is a trade-off and then you you start to toe the line between what speed to market going to look like for something like that. Right. So. And I think, I think from what we've seen certainly in the last six months or so is challenges with again, power generation, right? Backup generation. So I think part of the future will be generatorless data centers. And as you just said, bring in gas to the site to be able to do that. But I think that's definitely uh, something that's going to push the envelope on, on a lot of developments. I think we're going to go through a period of try this, try that, try this until we kind of find an avenue between your balance of how much power we can get and how much how efficient you can still get the PUEs and everything else down to where the most efficient data centers really will be yep. at the cream of the crop. Yeah. And I think we'll end it there. For today and then everybody steals that design <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
But Nick, thank you for being part of the oh, podcast. We appreciate pleasure. all the time you put in for us. Martin, Absolutely. of course, thank you for, for participating here. And thanks for having me up, Jim. Yeah, thanks for I appreciate STO support here and obviously Sentinel Data Centers. So thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Building Conversations. For more episodes like this, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, and the STO Building Group website.